Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to take us back this morning to uh, two brief passages in Chronicles. So in 2 Chronicles, reading first from chapter 16, verse 7, a beautiful little paragraph of just three verses. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa the king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. I think the King James says, run to and fro, which I sort of like. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing. From now on you will be at war. Now the second paragraph is found in... Uh, the next chapter, chapter 17. After Asa has died, Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeds him. And Jehoshaphat is a good king, devoted to the ways of the Lord, and he tries to turn the people of Israel, he tries to turn them into a true people of God. So you get this section, beginning with verse 7 of chapter 17. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, then Hiel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, Micaiah, to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramot, Yehonatan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, and the priests, Elishema and Jehoram. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so that they did not make war with Jehoshaphat. Some Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute, and the Arabs brought him flocks, 7,700 rams, and 7,700 goats. Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful. He built forts and store cities in Judah and had large supplies in the towns of Judah. He also, had kept, he also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. First and Second Chronicles is the story of the kings of Judah. And periodically in these kings' lives, the line shows up and God did something. And the writer differentiates what God does from what other people do. He may use natural forces and work through natural processes, but the chronicler says God is there and he is active. Now, you know, uh, you and I need to uh, think in terms of God being active and we should expect him to work in our lives. Now, my mistake in too much of life is I've looked back and given him thanks for what I've seen him do. But I've never gotten myself really to where I live in anticipation of what he's going to do. Some way or other, I can see the dark clouds and not see the one who is behind the dark clouds and above them. But uh, if we take the scripture clearly, there ought to be an anticipation in our hearts of saying, wonder what he's going to do today and wonder what he's going to do tomorrow. And I got this massive problem. I wonder what he's going to do in this thing. So there's the expectation within us. Uh, this was brought home to me that God is an actor in our lives and something that happened with us with one of the international students that you know about. And I thought maybe I ought to just take the time to share this one with you because it's a, to me it's a, it's a very precious story. In 1991, I got a letter at the college from a girl in Tianjin, China. So uh, she wrote and she said, I've become a believer and I believe that God is calling me to be an evangelist. 
And so she said, I need biblical training. Could I come to Asbury College and get biblical training? Now, uh, I wondered, you know, how under the sun she knew about Asbury. There was a Chinese boy that had developed an interest in from mainland China, and he had gone back to China, and while he was in China, he met me, and he told about Asbury. Now, uh, the chances of that, nor, uh, under ordinary chances, would be uh, uh, just about impossible, but it happened. So we took the letter, and we got her admitted, and... Uh, sent word back to her that she had been admitted. She went to the American embassy. And the embassy official said to her, you're already a university graduate. Why would you want to go to a college? She was a research person. She is a university graduate. And uh, so they said, no, we will not give you a visa for that. So she wrote back to me. And so we got her accepted at Asbury Seminary Graduate School. And so she went back to the American embassy and said that she had been accepted at the seminary and they put up all sorts of uh, obstacles to that. So for two years, the American embassy just kept saying no to anything she did and giving her a bunch more of questions. We'd answer her questions, and back would come a reply saying they've got more questions. Well, I gave up. I said, this isn't going to work. Well, in 1993, which was two years later, on the 10th of June, I got a communication from her saying, I believe if I could be reaccepted at Asbury Theological Seminary and if I could be assured of financial support, I might be able to get a visa. So she, uh, uh, so we went through that whole process again and uh, she uh, uh, went back to the American Embassy. The American Embassy official gave her more problems. She wrote back for more questions, so we wrote back. I said, see, no, it's not going to fly. So on the... 15th of August, I got a communication from her saying, I will be arriving in Houston, Texas on the 3rd of September. Can someone pick me up? So we communicated to her that Houston, Texas was about a halfway to China from Wilmore. <laughs> and so she flew into Lexington. Elsie and our daughter Beth took her out for lunch to find out something of her story and get acquainted with her. So they asked her about her last visit to the U.S. Embassy. And she told about how the embassy official asked her all sorts of questions again. and Finally, he looked at her and very soberly said, okay, one final question. She said, I knew everything was hanging on that. He said, looked at her and he said, would you please explain to me the theological significance of the Song of Songs in the Old Testament? You know, I was grateful there was a member, somebody in the U.S. Embassy that even knew there was such a thing as the Song of Songs. But she looked at him in horror. The only English she knew, she'd learned in an English class. If you've not dealt with anybody who's had to learn a second language, or if you've ever learned it, you know that a couple of years of foreign language in a college doesn't prepare you to answer in a foreign language the theological significance of the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. So she froze. She said, uh, suddenly it came. She said, I looked him in the eye and said, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Sir, that's the second verse of the first cha chapter of the Song of Proverbs, and it speaks of my Lord Jesus and his love for me and of my love for him. The American embassy official stared, shook his head, shrugged his shoulders, turned to the American next to her and said, let her go, she's for real. So she came, so she was in Wilmore. Now when she got to Wilmore, as I said, her English was not too good. And so when she began to write term papers for the seminary professors, they were not real happy <laughs> because Chinese syntax is a little different from English syntax. And you run English into Chinese syntax, and it doesn't make a great deal of sense. So the, her term papers were a better test of the professors than it was of her. And they were not too happy about that. But anyway, she kept working away at that. And uh, last December, she finished her degree and graduated. Now, uh, as she came closer to graduation, she said, you know, I don't know enough. I'd like to know a lot more. Is there any way I can stay another year? Well, the seminary was not too happy about that, so they said no. So uh, she had to plan to go home. She was afraid to go home. And we watched her go through the trauma of knowing that when she went home, it might mean imprisonment. She did not know what it might mean. She fought that thing through and came through victoriously and said, God will take care of me. I'm ready to go. 
Well, uh, during that time, whom some of you know, an Australian girl who had spent five years in China and who had been done three years of graduate work in the University of Tianjin, which was hometown. I had her take out for lunch and she came to me afterwards and she said, uh, Dr. Tenlow, I don't know what to recommend to you about joy. She said, I certainly don't see any place in the United States, in the, in the church in the United States for her. But she said, if she goes back to China, goodness knows what's going to happen to her. She said, uh, I fear for her, so I don't know what to tell you. Well, that didn't make me any happier. So as I was mulling over all this, I would deal with the lady in the seminary who handles uh, scholarship funds, and particularly for international students. And during the closing months that uh, Joy was there, I began to sense when I would mention Joy to her, because we had, uh, I think, about uh, about 10 or 12 international students that we were working with, she, uh, I would sense the lady at the seminary, who is an absolute peach of a person. She and her husband were missionaries in uh, Zaire for a while. He was a bush pilot, and she is a missionary in Asbury Theological Seminary. She, uh, let me just tell you this. She's the kind of person that we were having trouble finding funds for one of the students, international students, a very bright guy who wanted to, needed to take an extra course, and we didn't have the money to pay his tuition. And so I was talking with her about it, and she said, well, let me see what I can do. So this was on a Friday. On Saturday afternoon, about 2.30, she called me and said, Dennis, I've got it. I said, okay. She said, I've gone through the files of all of the international students at Asbury Seminary, checking how many of them, what, how many hours each student was taking and whether how much tuition scholarship funds had been allocated to them. And I found that there are some that are not taking a full load and so more money is allocated to them than they need, and I found enough money to cover uh, Aurelian. So, man, uh, those people, you know, she'd spent her Saturday saving or, or helping an international student. So that lets you know the kind of person she is. But I noticed in those last months when I would talk with her, she'd tense up a little when I'd talk about her. And I thought, uh-oh, they're getting to her. And I, it was getting to me a little. I thought, was it just sentimentality on my part that I got this letter and you stick your neck out for three, three and a half years of tuition and fees and living expenses and all the rest of this? And then you get a girl in a position where she's not at home in her own country and certainly not at home here. What, what, have you, have you, have you just done wrong by being sentimental and doing a nice, good thing? Well, uh, I remember when I first became president of the college, said to me, now, Ken Law, when you get in board meetings, always watch the last 15 minutes. Because after all the important work is done, you'll get more proposals for nice ideas than the world can imagine, and most of them are empty rabbit holes. For goodness sakes, don't start after them. And I lived through a lot of board meetings and found it was absolutely true. But anyway, I was wondering, uh, this and I was also wondering, what's going to happen to her when it come, she goes back and I'm responsible? So uh, she uh, finished her work, and she had about eight weeks before she had to fly back home to stay within the law. So she set her flying time back to China the 7th of February. Elsa and I were gone all through January. And we came home on the 2nd of February, a Saturday evening. Sunday morning, I saw Jen Church, and I said, I've got to leave town Tuesday on the 5th, and you are flying out on the 7th. So my only day is tomorrow. So for goodness sakes, call me early in the morning and let's find some time during the day when we can spend some time together before you go. And uh, she didn't call me. So I was feeling guilty, and I had a jam day picking up stuff and appointments. I had a 30-minute break between 3 and 3.30. And uh, I was tired, and 3 o'clock came and the doorbell rang. And I thought, oh, no. Uh, and I went to the door, and here stood a boy, a young fellow, about 42, nice-looking, casually dressed, and he just stared at me for a minute, and I stared at him. In Wilmore, you don't get many total strangers that ring your doorbell. And uh, you, the only way you can get to Wilmore is be going there. You can't go through Wilmore to anything except High Bridge, and there's where you jump off in the river. But uh, anyway, he stared at me, and I stared at him, and after a few moments, he looked at me, and he said, no, 
Dr. Kenlaw, you don't know who I am, but I uh, heard you speak in Florida about 15 years ago, and I was a teacher in a Christian day school in St. Petersburg, Florida. He said, I now am the principal of an international school in Tianjin, China, and I'm in Wilmore looking for staff. And I stared. I'm sure my mouth dropped open. And uh, as I stared, suddenly somebody stepped from around the corner of the door facing into my full view where I could see, and it was grinning with this big Chinese grin, and she looked and waved her hand and pointed at him and said, My miracle. So I said, Man, come in. So they came in and sat down, and I said, Tell me about uh, who you are and what you're doing. Well, he said, My parents were Sudan interior missionaries. And he said, I came to this country, studied at Houghton College, married uh, one of my fellow students, and he said, I became principal of a Christian day school in St. Petersburg, Florida. When I was about 32, he said, uh, God began to talk to me about whether I should spend the rest of my life in the United States. So I began praying about that, and what I felt was that God wanted us to see if we could get into China one way or another. He said, I began talking to my wife about uh, giving up my job and our going overseas, and she said, good, anywhere but China. He said, so I knew enough not to touch that. So he said, I just started praying about it, you know. And he said, it was interesting. In due time, I began seeing books on China beginning to show up on the coffee table. And he said, one day she looked at me and said, what about China? Well, he said, you know, maybe we ought to think about that. But anyway, uh, he said, so now I'm in China. He said, the school that I'm in, there are a group of American businessmen who, in order to get more of a Christian presence in China, in China, an international, a, 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 a foreigner, an international cannot teach a Chinese student, but an international can teach an international student. So he said, we, they decided to start some international schools to teach international students. Well, who are the international students? They're the diplomats' kids from all over the world. And they're the businessmen's kids from all over the world. They're the elite group of, uh, of students in, in China, you know. And so uh, he said, we have very good schools and we stand in great favor with the Chinese government and particularly in favor with the city government in Tianjin. My father was in the, in the mayor's office in Tianjin. He was a communist. And when she became a Christian, they put her in servants' quarters and began to harass her. The police picked her up and harassed her, gave her all sorts of problems. And when she decided to come to the United States, her mother said, I'll never speak to you again. So she'd gone through that. But over the time, her father and mother had begun to change their attitudes. But now she's going on. So he said, I was looking for staff, and I've come to Wilmore. He said, I never heard of it, but he said, I have three jobs any one of which she can have the day she lands back home, and I can pay her three times as much as she was paid in her governmental job before she came to the United States. Now, I said, could I communicate with you? He said, as long as you'll write as one good atheist to another. He said, uh, I said, tell me more about your schools. He said, it is not to her advantage nor ours for her to be overloaded with information when she's interrogated by the police when she gets home. So let's just close that conversation. So that's the kind of relationship. We have had enough communication that we know that she's back in her house church with her friends, her believing Christian friends before she came to the United States. And she has a job working in that school and also bearing her witness in her home and in her home city and in China. Now... Uh, you know, I, 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 the next morning, about 8 o'clock, I was flying out, I think at about 10.30, I called my friend in the seminary. I have some information that I think you might need to have. So I began telling her this story. The longer I talked, the more silent. Have you ever heard silence increase? <laughs> it just increased. And when I finished, when she spoke, I never heard her speak with such a sober tone. When I finished, she said, Oh, Dr. Kenlaw, I have committed two great sins. I'd begun to wonder whether we should have ever brought her here in the first place. And secondly, I'd wondered whether our Heavenly Father 
could take care of his own child when she went home. I must repent. I said, June, you just made my speech for me. But uh, God is at work. And he, 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 his, his work is there. He's not going to do it if the natural processes will take care of it. But if they won't, he'll move in to see that his eternal purposes are accomplished. Now, you may, you know, I, there was a time when I would have said a woman in the Orient, you know, that male-centered civilization, a woman in the Orient as an evangelist, I remember being in a in a conference, annual conference of the Emmanuel Church in Japan, and they ordained 13 people, and seven of them were ladies. The pastors of the best churches they've got are ladies, and in and in Korea it was the China, it was the Korean Bible women that did the most of the evangelistic work in the in the Korean church. So the women have a role that is even much more unique than the role of women in the United States. So who is to say what, uh, what, what God is doing when a slip of a little Chinese girl looks up at you and said, God has called me to be an evangelist. You don't know what's going to happen. Now, it's a joy to have a part in that kind of thing. God is an actor, and we ought to anticipate his uh, actions. <laughs> uh, I, I, since we live in the most significant moment in human history, there's never been a moment like this before in human history. Every barrier to the gospel in the world is either down or permeable. There's never been a day like that before in human history. If you could pick the moment in human history to live, today's the day you ought to pick. David Livingston would have, would have died to get it, live in a day like this <laughs> because of the opportunity, the open doors. Now, we live in a country where the church is bankrupt and largely apostate. So all we see is the death around us when God is at work in the world and the opportunities are here and the devil wants us to be blind enough that we don't take part in the greatest movement of the church in human history. I had a phone call from Sam Camelason one day and he had just been in Romania and he said, Dennis, can you take six Romanian students to Asbury? This is the middle of April. I said, Sam... We've already allocated all of our international funds, all of our scholarship funds for next year. You're going to have to let me sweat on this. So I sweated on it for a week. Every time I'd get down to pray, I knew a little of what's happening in Romania. The door had opened wide open for the gospel. And uh, so uh, I said, uh, as I'd get down to pray, the Lord would, it seemed to me the Lord was saying, do you remember when Paul tried to go east and I stopped him? And a guy from Macedonia, the vision of the Macedonian calling him came, and he turned west, and you've got the gospel. Now I've opened the door to the east, and are you not going to be a part of my carrying the gospel further into the east? And so I called him, and I said, I don't know how we'll do it, but uh, yeah, we'll take them. So uh, they got us in it. And uh, now one of those kids that came is one of the brightest students Asbury Theological Seminary has ever had. He very bright and very devout and very humble. <laughs> you know, very, very humble. There's a meekness in him. Well, uh, he now is the best student that Asbury Seminary has produced for a little while in Semitic studies. He can read Hebrew for you. He can read Greek. He can read Aramaic. He can read Syriac. He can read some Babylonian. And he's just been accepted and given a four-year scholarship at Hebrew Union in Cincinnati, which is the best uh, school in terms of Hebrew and Semitic studies, Old Testament studies in the United States. He's been given a four-year scholarship in which they pay his tuition free, give, pay his tuition, give him his tuition, and they give him $2,000 a year to help with his living. Now, there has never been, most of the biblical scholars, 95% of the biblical scholars in European universities with the potential that this kind, this kid has are unbelievers. They're liberals. Now, here is the possibility of a person being put in a place where he will be a leader and a, 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 a mind shaper and the Baptists in Romania have been able to start a Christian university and he can fit right in. He wants to do some pastoring, so he's a legitimate seminary professor as well, and uh, he uh, is, is this kind of kid. Well, uh, 
the president of the Romanian Baptist Church sat down with me and said, can you help these kids? Do you know what the president of the Romanian Baptist Church's salary is a year? A month? He makes $130 a month and 40 of it goes for taxes. There is no money in the Romanian church to train their leadership. Now, do we, uh, do we turn down these kind of opportunities? Or does God give them to us saying, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be a part of the great explosion of the body of Christ around the world because God is working in Romania. It's one of the most remarkable places in Eastern Europe and is a foothold for Moldavia and you can keep on going. Okay. God is an actor in history and we ought to count on him. We ought to look for him. We ought to expect him. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for hope, tikvah, is the noun of the verb wait. The Hebrew word wait, they that wait upon the Lord, kavah, you make a noun out of it and it's uh, hope. <laughs> now Americans wait gloomily <laughs> and usually grumblingly. A biblical believer waits joyously, expectantly. And I'm asking God to help me live that way, Steve. <laughs> and uh, it, it, doesn't run, it doesn't come naturally for me. But that's the biblical way. Okay. Now, what is it that he wants in me to be? What is it that he wants me to be like? Uh, I want to use Chronicles and Kings as, the, as an illustration of that. Now, uh, if you'll go through Chronicles and Kings, you will find... Lines like this, where Hanani says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now you know uh, the expression fully committed. You roll right over that, say, oh yes. You read another passage and it will say uh, fully uh, dedicated. Uh, you, you get different... Uh, uh, synonymous expressions for that kind of thing. And we say, yes, that's the way everybody should be. You'll find him saying, with a whole heart, with all of the heart, mind and strength and so forth. But now, in Hebrew, it's interesting. There is an expression that is used in Kings and Chronicles that, I, as far as I know, is not used anywhere else in the, in the Old Testament. So my own feeling is that for the guys who wrote Kings and Chronicles, they had a technical expression that it was as technical as our term when we use the word conversion. Now, if you're talking about uh, to an engineer about conversion, that's one thing. <laughs> but if you're talking to a, an evangelist about conversion, man, it's got a very specific definition. Now, uh, uh, I've become convinced that this expression in the Hebrew is a technical expression. And that when the guy used it, he had something very clearly in mind. If you look at that line, it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are, and it says fully committed. The, the expression in Hebrew is simply the word shalem. Now, you know the Hebrew word shalom because it means peace. So what he says is, God is looking for people who have a lave, that's the Hebrew word for heart, or a levav, two forms of it, a lave or a levav shalem. Now you could translate that, a heart of peace. Now, uh, you and I like that because we like peace. But you know, the interesting thing is, our understanding of shalem is the results of it rather than the cause of it. What is peace? It means the war stopped, doesn't it? Has the war stopped in your heart? <laughs> Could have pin it down just that way. <laughs> Has the strife stopped in your heart? God's eyes run to and fro through the whole earth looking for people in whom the war has stopped. The conflict is over. It is settled. Now, uh, the peace is there. Now, what's interesting is that that is very right because the Hebrew word shalom comes from a Babylonian word shalamu, which means to finish. It means to complete. It is used of a year closing. The year's over with. It's done. You can't get it back. <laughs> it's used of completing the temple. 
It's completed now. You don't need to do any more to it. It is used in exactly that way in other contexts. Shalom is used in that way. So who is at peace? He's one where it's settled. The war inside is over and the person is wholly committed to the law. Now, uh, that's what God's looking for. Now, I want to talk about how that is used in, for, in Kings and First and Second Chronicles. It is the test by which the kings of Israel are measured. As you go through, if you know what's behind the English, that is the test as to whether a person is, whether a king is what God wants him to be. Whether he has a heart, shalem, a lay shalem. Now, let me illustrate the way it uh, is used. Just run through these. In uh, David's life, when he uh, is in the transition from running from Saul to becoming king, his fighting men come to Hebron and they want to make him king. And they come with Levavim Shalamim. They come with whole hearts. There's no question as to who they want for king. They're committed. And when they come to Hebron to crown him king, if Saul's family, which is the family that's been on the throne and owns the army, they've made the, the diet that could kill them, that could be their death. They've chosen their king. And it's David. No alternative. Now that's the first use of it. The second is that uh, David says to Solomon, when he knows he's making the transition, he says, what you've got to have is a lave shalain, a heart, a heart that is undivided, a heart that is united, a heart that the commitment is completed one thing, and that is that you will serve the Lord. Uh, when David is preparing for the building of the temple, the leaders come to him, and the commentary is that their hearts were shalain as far as the building of the temple meant, was, was concerned, and that is the resources that we've got are at your, are, are at your disposal. So that the resources we've got are at your disposal. That sort of fits with what we think of as consecration ought to be, isn't it? Okay. Now, when David is at the end of his life and he prays for his son Solomon, his prayer for him is that he will have a lave shalane. When you, uh, when Solomon ascends the throne, he gathers his people together and he tells them that they must be a nation marked by a lave shalane a single heart. When you come to uh, the, the, <laughs> the chroniclers or the king's evaluation of Solomon, at the end of Solomon's life, the, king, the writer of the book of Kings says, but Solomon's heart was not shalane. And his problem was his foreign wives divided his loyalty. That's a pretty good picture, isn't it? Now, who is he? He is the king of the people of God. He is the king in the holy city. <laughs> He's the one on the messianic throne. But his heart is not single. And so he is not pleasing to God. Last word said about him. Now the next, his successor, Rehoboam, no comment is made, except that it's very clear his wasn't. Then you come to Abijah, and it says his heart was not. You come to Asa, and it says his heart was. You come to Hanani, and Hanani says God's looking for people with that kind of heart. You come to Jehoshaphat, and he tells his Levites, his priests, and the family heads that they have to have hearts that are like that. And you come to Amaziah, and it says Amaziah did right, but he didn't have a lay shalane. <laughs> Isn't that an interesting picture? <laughs> the standard is there. Some make it, some don't. You get to the last one, and he does right, but he doesn't have the lation. He's not all the way. And he is the king. He's the equivalent of the president and the bishop. Maybe I should, this is the theocracy, so maybe I should just say bishop. And he's in the, he's part of the body, but his heart isn't single. 
That is what God wants out of me, a heart single. Now, if you read through Chronicles, it's very clear. It's not easy to get. <laughs> and if you get it, it ain't easy to keep. <laughs> because you find that there is... A, <laughs> I've learned a new word. I've begun to use a new word in the last couple of years. I knew it was there, but never knew what to do with it. And one day, I thought, wait a minute, maybe this word will describe what I want. And so I chased down the word entropy. Now, uh, the first de the first dictionary that I turned to, I've been collecting books long enough that I got dictionaries that are way out of date. So the one that I had at my fingertip and pulled it down, it gave me a scientific definition, <laughs> M.O. of entropy, that was so technical I didn't have the vaguest notion of what he was talking about. And that was the only definition it gave. I thought, wait a minute, that's used by guys who are not scientists. And so I reached around and got a more up-to-date dictionary and pulled it down, and it had that same technical definition, which was beyond my ken, but it had a second definition. What it said was, entropy is a principle of disintegration and disorientation at work in an organism or an institution. A principle of disintegration and disorientation. Now, you know, uh, I've decided that's a magnificent word for original sin. <laughs> a principle of disintegration within us that when we, get, when we get to know God, it's what creates all the problems before we know him, and when we get to know him, it's still at work. And so you get uh, Solomon, who starts out well, and at the end the final word is, but his heart was not shalane. You get some of them who start out well, they're like Solomon. You get an occasional like Manasseh, who starts out lousily and ends up okay. So you get it going both ways, and you get some of them, they never are what God wants them to be. That brings to me, you know, you hear us talk about holiness and, and uh, entire sanctification and these terms, and we talk about them in Wesleyan terms. There are moments when I rebel inwardly at the term Wesleyans. <laughs> because uh, Wesley came along pretty late in this whole thing. <laughs> now, I'm a Wesleyan. That's the best place I know to go in terms of theological settling. But let me say when I stand in the judgment, I'm not going to be judged by whether I was a Wesleyan or not. I'm going to be judged by whether I was biblical or not. And what I'm beginning to find is that this is exactly what Wesley was talking about by entire sanctification. A heart that is not divided. The war's over with. <laughs> Jesus has won it. And he owns the person. That doesn't mean he can't be tempted. That doesn't mean... The outside battle is, is, is over with. The devil's going to have a gun. He's going to fight us to the end. Death is when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And it is, it is the battle all the way. But the battle doesn't have to be whether I'm going to do the will of God. <laughs> the battle doesn't have to be whether I'm going to do the will of God. I can, he can bring me to the place where that choice is made. But hold on. He can bring me to the place where that choice is maintained. And I almost wonder sometimes that we don't need to preach harder on the fact that it can be maintained as it is that it can be uh, reached. Because I think there are many of us who've reached it occasionally through His grace, and then we have flipped. You know, I found when I was in a pastorate, that when the disintegration started inside me, it started in my church, too. <laughs> and when the integration was at work here, it had sort of worked through my church, too. Now, there may be exceptions to that, but uh, I notice that when the heart's right, the extremities get the benefits. <laughs> and if you got a heart problem, you don't start with the extremities to cure the problem. They slice you open where the problem is and correct it here. And then the benefits come to the extremities. Now, I love the soundness of the, of the scripture at this point. 
And so the question is, can God give me a single heart? Can God bring me to the place where the war is over inside? Now, it's not, it's not going to be done through human effort. And all of us keep trying to get there through human effort. <laughs> we crank up our devotional life, get a little more resolute. We're going to do more, give more, do these other things. And it's a dead-end street. It's a dead-end street. Still, I love what you said. Now I can't remember the exact wording of it, but that's what I heard you saying. When you, when you realize your bankruptcy <laughs> and your desperate need of something beyond yourself, uh, and you've never gotten over that, have you? <laughs> you need them as much today as you did back then. But there is a grace that comes if we will trust him. Now, the question that comes to me is this. How much did Jesus die to do for me on the cross? Do you know what I think we've done in the United States? In evangelicalism? I think we have unwittingly fallen, unwittingly fallen into a trap where we say, what does it take to be saved? And what we mean is, what does it take, what's the minimal that needs to be done to get me inside the kingdom? And then we preach that and we get, we evangelize to get them inside the kingdom, just inside the door. And they say, look, now spend the rest of your time looking at the door that's closed behind you. When God says, man, when you get saved, it's just started. There's more. And the best thing is, even after you're saved, you're going to find entropy in here. <laughs> and so you need to realize, you've got to live a Christian life to realize how entropic you are. Is there such a word, M.O.? <laughs> uh, We've got to, it, you, I think a person has to live a Christian life a little while before he realizes how sinful he is. I never felt real guilty before I was saved. <laughs> but after I found Christ, man, I found out what guilt really was. And then I began saying, is there something you can do about this, God? And I found out I couldn't do anything about it. And when you trust him, see, that's what he died on the cross to do. He died to get the battle outside of us and to get it settled that we're his and wholly his and he can do with us what he pleases. We give up our rights to ourselves. But how do you give up your rights to yourself? You really don't. It's bad language. Do you know you'll never give up your right to yourself? If you ever lose it, it'll have to be taken from you. <laughs> and that's what grace is when you give him permission to come in and take away your right to yourself. I was interested. At the Cove the other day, I was talking about the fact that God came to me and said, uh, I want your whole heart. And I said, good. You can have my whole heart. He said, what's that on the corner? <laughs> I said, that's my thumb. <laughs> well, he said, how can it be all mine when you still got your thumb on the corner? I said, you mean, you, you mean I can't have anything in, anything in this process? And the Lord said, if, I'm, if you're going to be holy mine, you can't. And so he said, uh, you want to be holy mine? I said, yeah. Well, he said, take it off. And I found out I couldn't. I finally came to a place where I said, God, it isn't a question whether I can take it off because I can't. The eye won't kill itself. It'll find a way out. <laughs> it's subtle and clever. <laughs> and it will always find its way out with religious methodology. It'll always be religious when it's finding its way out. So the question was, God, I can't. Is this something you can do to get it off there? So he said to me, can I, can I uh, crack your knuckles? And uh, so he started. Now, I use that. There was a little girl came up to me. Well, she was a married woman who was in marital difficulties. And she had sat alone through the whole thing, almost every session by herself. You knew she was fighting an incredible battle. So she came up to me at the end of that and she said, How do I get it off? It stuck and she used some name for technically, technically, Term for remarkably sticky glue. 
I don't know what the name of it. I don't remember exactly what it was. But whatever the strongest glue is you can find, that's the kind of thing. She said, it's stuck on there with that kind of glue and I can't break it loose. I said, no, you can't. That's why the cross was necessary. Because there is something in the cross, in the blood of Christ, that can save me from me. But it is only the blood of Christ that can do it. And it is that come to the end of myself and say, God, there's no other way. Can you? Will you? And he says, I can. I will. Will you trust me? Then I think you wait and hope. And you'll find when you're not looking, he's begun to set you free. I love the fact, Phil, you didn't talk about a great religious experience. <laughs> but you talked about grace. Sometimes our discussion of religious experience hides the fact it's all of grace. And the grace comes and you begin to set free. Now, uh, God needs that kind of people today. He needs that kind of people all over creation. Because if he gets you, I don't care where you are, you'll be part of the work of God across the world. You don't even have to be very knowledgeable. If you're wholly his, you're part of the answer to the world's problem because of the grace of God that's flowing through you. Now you say, uh, what can I do? Uh, one of the things is uh, you can look at the resources you've gotten. I love the passage where it says that the people came when David wanted to build a temple. The people came to him with, with hearts that were shalem. And so their resources were available for whatever needed to be done. Let me mention one of the places where uh, it concerns me. Now, your family, so bear with me for a moment. Uh, it may be this is as great a burden as I've had in 20 years. You know, Paul says God gives to the church gifts. And when he lists those gifts, he gives Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Ephesians 4. Now, I know what to do with teachers because I've been in that role. I know what to do with pastors because that's a central cog in the, in the church in our day. I think I know what to do with evangelists, and I think I know what to do with prophets. I think Chuck, Chuck Colson is a prophet. A prophet is a guy who can look at the contemporary situation and speak critically, analytically, and judgmentally in terms of what God's point of view is. I think I understand that. There are not a great many prophets, but there are some. Uh, the apostles. There was a time when I thought the apostles were the twelve. But if you read the New Testament carefully, you will find that uh, there are people other than the twelve that are listed as apostles. The ones that were on Paul's team that traveled around the Mediterranean basin were called apostles. Well, Ron told me something which I had never caught. It's interesting, the Greek word for an apostle comes from uh, the verb, Greek verb apostello, apostle. But the Vulgate of that is missio. And apostello means I sin, so they're the sent one. So I wonder if it is not more accurate to translate that. God has given to the church gifts, missionaries, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now we got missionaries, and we need to support them. You know, uh, I checked through uh, the New Testament, and there word for pastor occurs once. The word for evangelist occurs three times as many, three, three times as many times as the word for, for pastor. If you didn't have a pastor, what would, you, what would the church do? The church would work an emergency program to find pastors to fill the pulpits because the church can't function without them. There's not a major denomination in this country other than the Southern Baptists and the Assemblies of God and the Nazarenes that has any program to provide evangelists for the church. Not a single one. 
And if a Methodist decides he needs, God has called him into evangelism, what happens is the structure puts obstacle after obstacle after obstacle after obstacle in the way. And then having done that, if, they, if he has enough clout, they can't refuse him. Then they say, fine, blessings on you. And they take away his salary, his parsonage, his, his, in, his medical insurance, and his pension. And they say, fine, blessings on you. And then he starts out. And if the typical evangelist in the United States were to preach 46, time, 46 weeks a year, 46 campaigns a year, his income at the end of the year would probably be about $20,000. Do you know any man who can live and raise a family on $20,000 a year? And I do not know but one ch church in this country who's doing anything to help keep an evangelist out there. Do you know the New Testament doesn't even have a, have a model for a pastor, but it's got one for an evangelist? <laughs> Philip was an evangelist. <laughs> and you remember that uh, fellow from uh, Ethiopia was headed south after having been to the festival in Jerusalem. And Philip, God leads Philip, and he comes alongside us and says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy said, how could I? It was Isaiah 53. And he says, would you like me to tell you? He tells him, and he's converted. And the church went into Africa. You can keep going on that. But now, uh, that's the reason I read this second passage from Second Chronicles about uh, Jehoshaphat. When he sent out across the country 13 officials, Six officials, and if I remember correctly, seven Levites and two priests. No, there were eight Levites and two priests. And they talked throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. And they went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had some itinerant evangelists that go from church to church? You know what's happening in the United States? That's what you had originally as an evangelist. But a byproduct of Billy Sunday and Billy Graham is that now an evangelist is an interdenominational cooperative crusader to the extent that back about 1988, I picked up the telephone one day and called uh, one of the members of the staff of the Lausanne Committee on World Evangelism, you know, the Billy Graham organization that provided international congresses on evangelism all over the world. And I said to him, in your congresses, do you have a section for the church-related evangelist? And the guy looked at me and said, I'm not sure I know what you mean. So I said, I mean a man who's ordained and works within the structures of his church as an evangelist in local churches. Oh, he said, I've never heard of such a thing. I sat and talked to the guy who's head of the code, wonderful person the other day. It's obvious. His world and mine are totally different. The thing that brought me into existence as a Christian has never existed to his knowledge. And that's a man who comes into a local church and backs up what the local pastor is saying, confirms it, and brings people to, to conversion. Do you know that's the way most of the churches were built in this country? And that's the way the Methodist church started out. Everyone was out there. <laughs> Now, would, does, is God content that we've lost one of the orders of ministry? Now, let me say one more thing. I was sitting with, who is the dean of the Graduate School of Theology at Drew University, Methodist University. He is a church historian and a historical theologian and a tremendous man and a very tremendously knowledgeable man on church history. And I said to him, I said, Jim, is the itinerant evangelist an American frontier phenomenon that is now an anachronism? Because that's what most people believe. He said, wow, who was St. John? I thought a minute, yeah, St. John the evangelist. <laughs> he said, well, what were Francis Friars who tramped around Europe witnessing and preaching? He said, now you may not be able to run a steady line, an unbroken line from Paul all the way down to Billy Graham, but he said it's like the prophet. Periodically, God lays his hand on an Amos or a Billy Sunday or somebody else and picks him up and says, here, go. I want you to be an evangelist. 
You know, he did that with E. Stanley Jones. In 1920, they tried to elect E. Stanley Jones a bishop. He turned it down and said, no, God's calling me to be an evangelist. And in 1924, they elected him. And he went back to the hotel that night and tried to sleep on it. In the middle of the night, the Lord said to him, I thought I called you to be an evangelist. So the next day he arose in the annual in the conference and uh, asked for a point of privilege and resigned. And when he resigned, he walked out of the conference. And as he walked out, he met the pastor of maybe the most influential Methodist church in the United States as he walked out who met him and said, Stanley, you've made a great mistake. I sat and looked at the president of the Romanian Baptist Church who said to me, could our Romanian kids do their theological training at Asbury Theological Seminary? And I said, Vasily, there's nothing I'd like Matt better, but uh, we'd hate wonderful to have him at the college, but we don't want to do anything to hinder these kids when they get back to uh, Romania, and we're not Baptists. I said, and I certainly was not about to propose it without knowing how you felt about it. And he looked back at me and his face changed. I wish I had a video of his face. It changed. He looked at me and said, Oh, you don't understand. Sam Camelason is our father and E. Stanley Jones influenced us profoundly. How grateful we would be to have somebody in our church trained in an institution associated with those two evangelists. <laughs> now, uh, uh, is it a legitimate office? In 1968, uh, the wealthy man in the United States came to Billy Graham and said, Billy, I've got enough money and enough real estate to build a major American university, and if you'll be the president, we'll build a great Christian university like Harvard or Yale in the United States. Billy fussed over that thing for six months and went back to him and said, I'm sorry, God has not called me to be an educator. He's called me to be an evangelist. And the guy, he didn't see the guy again for eight years, and in 1976 met him in a reception line at the White House for Queen Mary. The guy looked at him and said, just think, Dr. Billy, you could be the president of a great American university now, influencing the world for Christ if you had only been willing. Billy looked back and said, no, God called me to be an evangelist. Did he? Well, do we need him? I looked at Jim Payne and said, is there a grace that goes with the office? He said, why, of course. The pastor has a grace that the teacher doesn't have. The teacher has a grace the pastor doesn't have. He said, of course there's a grace that the evangelist has that the prophet doesn't have, or the teacher or the, or the preacher. And I said, well then, if you don't have any evangelists, does that mean there is a grace lacking in the church? He said, there's no escape. Of course there's a grace lacking in the church if you don't have any evangelists. Did you ever pray to have pray for God to call people to be pastors or missionaries? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had some real hot-hearted evangelists in the United States again? Is that the reason for us that one of the reasons for us sitting on these posts? I'd like to suggest that one of the things you can do is help somebody who's in the field, like Bob Nelson or Ron Smith or Paul Vleck, help them survive and make them a part of your part of service for Christ. Get some of them on your, on your refrigerator. <laughs> because I believe God wants to do something in this country. I believe he wants to bring revival. And the Local pastor needs somebody to second what he's doing and confirm it. You say, well, how many churches would be open to them? That's not the question. They will open if the people are divinely called. They will open. So uh, that's one of the things that, that I brought out of this. So you, it's obvious that I can keep you here all day, and I won't do that. But isn't it an interesting day in which to live? You know, I notice that judgment and salvation always come at the same time. You can count on it if you see a great saving work of God, somebody is lost. 
God saved Israel out of Egypt and destroyed Pharaoh. God destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and saved Israel from idolatry. You've never met an idol-worshiping Jew since. God destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and through the destruction of that, the gospel was more freely spread across the Mediterranean world. The fall of Rome was the beginning of another kind of move of the Spirit of God. And uh, same time you had the French Revolution in France, you were having uh, the same things that produced that. In, in England, you had a great movement of God that saved England from the same kind of thing. Our country's coming apart. It's dissolving. It's disintegrating. My reaction, and you know, as an American, is to be sad. My reaction as a Christian is to be glad. <laughs> because if it's a false option, God is obligated to pull her apart. But while he's pulling her apart, the gospel can become clear. <laughs> it is our day of greatest opportunity. Let her collapse. And out of the ashes, God will, church will stand. Now, it's not going to be the Methodist church, and it ain't going to be the Episcopal church, and it ain't going to be the Baptist church, but God's church will stand out of the ashes that, that come. And we have the privilege of being a part of that. It's a great day. Now, that's what I wanted to share. You know, I think we ought to just bow our heads in gratitude that God's given us this moment, and we can be a part of what he's doing in our world.